Hello, everybody. I'm Howie Hawkins. I was the Green Party and Socialist Party candidate for president in 2020. And this podcast, Green Socialist Notes, is about continuing to educate and organize around the eco-socialist program that Angela Walker and I ran on in 2020. So the big news today is that, well, there's a lot of news this week, but the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, which I call Bill Back Badly Bill, um, passed the House. And what was unusual about it uh, is that every single Democrat voted for it and every single Republican voted against it. Usually there's one or two or a few dissenters on one or the other side, but this was uh, pretty unanimous. But the reasons for that were not so much what is in the bill, but, but politics for the November election. The Democrats needed talking points saying they got climate action passed and drug price reductions, even though those, those measures for climate action and, and drug price reductions are token at best. And the Republicans don't want the Democrats to have a talking point, even though the bill uh, promotes climate denying boosts to the fossil fuel industry, which the Republicans are all about. So uh, this had more to do with the politics in November than the substance of the bill. And, you know, the radical climate uh, action and environmental justice groups have opposed this bill uh, because it promotes fossil fuels. You know, for example, we've talked about this. uh, They have to uh, lease 2 million what is it, 2 million acres or square miles a year. And uh, they have to do that before any uh, public land is open or, or ocean is open for uh, renewables, you know, offshore wind and onshore wind and solar. Um, so it gives the fossil fuel industry, you know, first dibs. And uh, basically, according to the Center for Biological Diversity, would lock in fossil fuel production, gas and oil, at current levels for a decade, which is a climate disaster. Um, So among the groups opposing this, the Climate Justice Alliance, uh, the Center for Biological Diversity, Food and Water Watch, Indigenous Environmental Network, uh, those groups, you know, are at the grassroots. They're really fighting this. uh, And they are advocating for the climate actions we need, not what's convenient for the Democratic Party. You know, it's noteworthy that not one progressive Democrat voted against uh, this bill in the House. And Bernie Sanders didn't, when it was before the Senate, offer amendments to try to uh, get rid of the fossil fuel giveaways and strengthen some of the health care and uh, climate action provisions. And he got no support from Democrats in the Senate. As far as I can tell from reading the news, not one progressive Democrat offered similar amendments before it was voted on in the House. <clears throat> so it seems the progressives in the Democratic Party are more concerned with giving great, the Democrats a talking point for November than in giving voice to the radical climate and environmental justice movements. So just a little comment on this. Some, some more has come out this week. You know, the, the there are four models out there from... Uh, Rhodium, Princeton's repeat model, Energy Innovations, and Moody's. And they all come in around 30 to 40% carbon reductions out of this bill. One of them says the range is as high as 44% of 
but they have, you know, really uh, unrealistic assumptions, mostly having to do with that the private sector and state government and local government is going to do a lot in conjunction with this bill, which is, you know, really doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, but in, the other thing about it is the assumptions about carbon removal. It's like the International Panel on Climate Change. You know, we got to reduce carbon emissions at a certain time frame. What is it, 50 percent by or 45 percent by 2030? Um, so that by the end of the century, we can, you know, or by the 2050, we can be at net zero. And by the end of the century, starting to draw carbon out of the atmosphere. But that assumes massive uh, implementation, development of carbon capture and sequestration or even direct air capture and sequestration geologically. And those technologies are not there. And the money to do it, if you want to do direct air capture and uh, sequester that carbon geologically, for example, by uh, putting carbonated water, you take carbon out of the atmosphere, put it in water, put that in basalt rock formations, and over a couple of years, that solidifies in the carbonates in the rock, in, those, in that porous basalt rock. They're doing that in Iceland, but it's very expensive. It can only be done if it's publicly subsidized. And there is some provisions in this bill that subsidize that at a price that they think will convince some companies to try to do it. But the overall, to get the 40% reduction, they're assuming that uh, one-sixth or even one-fifth of all carbon reductions will come from carbon removal. Um, that would be 13 times the current carbon removal capacity by 2030. Um, there are only 12 uh, carbon capture facilities in the U.S. now. And all but one of them take that carbon and pump it into oil wells to enhance oil recovery. So it really doesn't remove carbon. It just enables them to get more oil to burn out of the ground that they fracked. So, um, and then to even get the carbon dioxide to where it can be uh, sequestered or used in another way, uh, they need 65,000 miles of carbon dioxide pipelines by 2050. Now there's some proposals in the Midwest basically to take the carbon from uh, biofuel capture as well as fossil fuel capture and bring it up to the Bakken oil field to pump it into oil wells so they can get more oil out. Um, but that seems like an unrealistic assumption or else a massive infrastructure project that will lock us into fossil fuels for decades. Um, so it, it just burns me up that the progressive Democrats and the more mainstream environmental NGOs, climate action NGOs are calling this a victory. They're calling a defeat a victory. This is what's left of Build Back Better, and that's why I call it Build Back Badly, because it's really about fossil fuel infrastructure. The solar and wind incentives uh, all go to corporations or wealthy consumers who can afford to use the tax credits for their electric vehicles. Um, and then even, and the Indigenous Environmental Network has pointed this out, and uh, by the way, uh, let's put that article from the conversation on the projected emissions to get this uh, carbon capture to get this 40% um, reduction. And then the Indigenous Environmental Network has a, a nice uh, set of slides uh, showing the problems with this bill, particularly, or not particularly, but they do point out 
that you know the 60 billion in the bill supposedly for an, uh, environmental justice projects are competitive grants that can be and in all for all practical purposes will be taken by for-profit corporations and the big NGOs. It's really not going to help the disadvantaged communities. And what they call clean energy in these so-called environmental justice projects, as well as through the whole bill, includes carbon capture and sequestration, nuclear power, biofuels, which, uh, you know, you grow the crop that sequesters the or grabs the carbon, but then you burn it and you put it back in the atmosphere. Um, fossil hydrogen, where you strip the hydrogen off of natural gas. Uh, and carbon markets for carbon offsets, which is a whole scam. And is basically the way fossil fuel industry is saying, well, we can keep burning carbon because we're going to offset it by growing a tree. And, uh, you know, the, there's been a lot of scams about that. So that's what they call clean energy. So Indigenous Environmental Network and the other environmental justice groups are really complaining about that. So where are we? Well, the climate movement, and this includes the more mainstream as well as radical groups, is demanding that Biden declare a climate emergency, which would give him a lot of powers to do more than he has done. He had his chance. They all lobbied him. They met with him. He hasn't done it. I don't think we can expect that before the election. And then they want to vote down this side deal uh, for easier permitting for fossil fuel projects. Um, and I think it would be interesting to see if the progressive Democrats in the House and Sanders in the Senate put up a real fight on the permitting bill. I'm skeptical, but we'll see it because that election's coming close and they don't want to muddy their message that they got something done when they didn't really. So there was good news this week, too. Um, it was a bad week for Trump and his fascist movement, which is good news. Uh, you know, the Trump-endorsed election-denying Republicans for governor, secretary of state, and attorney general in several states have won their primaries. And if they win the general election, that will enable the Republicans to steal elections. That's what they're aiming for. But overall, it was a bad week for Trump and his fascists. Uh, Monday, the FBI uh, went to Mar-a-Lago and seized documents. And uh, then on Wednesday, Trump had to sit for a deposition with the New York State Attorney General in the civil uh, tax fraud investigation of the Trump Organization. And Trump took the Fifth Amendment over 400 times. Uh, I think that shows he's got something to hide, although it's kind of been hiding in plain sight to the rest of us for a long time. You know, the insurance fraud, the bank fraud, the tax fraud, you know, telling, you know, the government his properties are worth a low number and then telling uh, insurance and bank uh, banks in order to get loans that his properties are worth more than they really are. That's fraud at both ends. And then Thursday, um, the judge uh, decided to release and Trump said he wanted to see it released. I don't think he thought it would happen. Uh, the warrant to go in and, and uh, grab documents and the list of documents seized. And uh, the warrant showed they're investigating three violations of the Espionage Act by Trump. And uh, we know the documents included the highest security clearances, including reportedly from unnamed sources, uh, documents related to nuclear weapons. 
which is kind of scary. I mean, it was always scary to have Trump around the nuclear button because he didn't know, didn't know shit, really. Um, and he's crazy. Um, now, we have to recognize the Espionage Act is a problematic statute. It's been used uh, particularly since the Obama administration, but right through Trump and, and now Biden, to prosecute whistleblowers like Edward Snowden and now the journalist uh, Julian Assange. And, you know, that's a threat to both the whistleblowers getting information out to the public that we ought to know, and the journalists like Julian Assange who takes that information and publishes it. It's not just Assange that's under threat by his prosecution, it's the New York Times and the Washington Post, although they don't seem to recognize it, even though they did publish stuff from him uh, before, you know, uh, when was it? They got, I guess it was after the, uh, the, the uh, Chelsea Manning releases that they kind of pulled back. <clears throat> you know, and the big problem with the Espionage Act is it doesn't allow for whistleblowers to mount a public interest defense. In other words, saying it was, you know, better that the public got this information that it, than that it remained secret uh, for the public in the public interest. And, uh, Representative Rashida Tlaib has twice attempted to get that part of the Espionage Act amended. Uh, she tried in July to get it attached as an amendment to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act. And uh, <clears throat> earlier in the year, tried to get it attached to the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which was a House bill that was passed in response to uh, Trump's abuses of pardon power and the insurrection on January 6th. And in both cases, the Rules Committee didn't even let it go to the floor for a vote. So uh, the rest of Congress, the rest of the House hasn't had a chance to state where they come out on that. Um, and by the way, the Rules Committee that uh, squashed those amendments from Rashida Tlaib is uh, chaired by a progressive caucus member, Jim McGovern of Massachusetts. So, you know, it just shows even the progressive Democrats as a whole are not so damn progressive. Um, and I'm going to put an article in the, uh, in the chat because, you know, what the hell did Trump want to do with all this classified information? And David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize journalist who teaches here at the Syracuse University Law School now, as well as uh, continues to do journalism, uh, has a column out saying the evidence suggests that Trump wanted to sell them for profit, like nuclear secrets to Saudi Arabia or something. So, uh, put that in the chat, and, uh, you know, I think that's worth a read. So Monday, they uh, uh, exercised a warrant against Trump in Mar-a-Lago. Wednesday, Trump pleaded the fifth 400 times in relation to the civil uh, tax fraud investigation. And then on, uh, what was it? Yeah, on Friday, there's also a criminal case against the Trump organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisberg, on, on these tax fraud charges. Um, and so, you know, what David K. Johnson suggests is that uh, Trump wanted to sell this, this stuff for profit. Um, so anyway, he's got a criminal case, a civil case, an espionage case, and uh, they got the documents. They got, they got the goods. It's about time that Trump... Uh, 
got caught on financial fraud with respect to banks, insurance, and real estate taxes. It's been obvious for decades. David K. Johnson's written about that in a couple books. Now, the jury selection for this uh, criminal trial on Trump's tax fraud charges, uh, which is really aimed at Alan Weisselberg um, and the Trump Organization, that the jury selection is scheduled for October 24th, which means Trump Organization will be on trial uh, as we go into the November elections. Uh, and it couldn't happen to a better guy, as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, that's, I think that's good news that the, the far right uh, and its leader, Trump, needs their comeuppance for all the criminal activity they've been engaged in. Um, and then there's good news on the ballot access end of things. The North Carolina Green Party is on the ballot. Matthew Ho will be on the ballot for U.S. Senate and their other candidates. There were two decisions this week, um, U.S. District Court and then the U.S. Uh, Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, rejected Democratic Party uh, appeals to knock the Greens off the ballot. So uh, the ballots had to start being printed up yesterday, I believe. So uh, now, finally, Matthew Ho and the Green candidates in North Carolina can turn to campaigning. Uh, in Missouri, I know the Greens turned in over 10,000 signatures. I haven't heard if they've been challenged. That was first of the month. And then in Pennsylvania, uh, the Green Party petition was turned in. Nobody challenged. They're on the ballot. And I'm glad I was able to help them a couple weekends ago. It was close, but I guess it was good enough. So um, with that, I'm looking forward to your questions and your comments. Uniquely evil. Trump had so much to hide evidence. I wonder if he did. Uh, I believe there's, they're, they're talking, you know, on the cable news. Uh, I saw it on MSNBC this morning. Uh, did they really, uh, did the FBI get everything that's in Mar-a-Lago? Uh, it's apparent that Trump's lawyer really didn't have a clue what, you know, Trump had. Um, and as one lawyer pointed out in that discussion, you know, white collar criminals often don't tell their lawyers the full story so they can try to control the narrative, which is what Trump always tries to do. So, uh, yeah, there may be more evidence there. Um, and, you know, the FBI, um, I'm sure, is continuing to uh, investigate, the Department of Justice to investigate and see if uh, they have to execute another warrant if necessary. So, yeah, I'm... I wouldn't be surprised if there was more stuff at Mar-a-Lago that didn't get uh, taken away by the FBI. Violet at Content, Content Boutique. Ralph Nader spoke up against self-driving cars. Any thoughts? Yeah, I saw Ralph's uh, press release. The thing that struck out at me is that even Tesla admits the software kind of has a, you know, uh, screws up about every eight, eight minutes, I think is what the number was. Um, and so they're setting themselves up for a lot of suits for people they get killed, you know, and Ralph points, you know, what about a young child walking to school and the car, you know, drives off the road and hits the child. Um, so I think Ralph's got a good point and he calls on the regulatory agencies to do their job. And uh, as he always does, and off as they often don't. So, 
I think Ralph brought up an important point. Emil Sachs, Howie, thoughts on the CDC, Center for Disease Control, basically promoting let it rip for multiple epidemics, pandemics, much like Trump did. Yeah, that's the point. He, he's not any, you know, the Biden administration is not any different than the Trump administration at this point. Uh, maybe a little different in there saying, get your vaccines, it's important. Even Trump was saying that after a while. Um, but public health measures like masking, um, and, and how long people have to or should or recommended to uh, quarantine themselves if they test positive for, uh, for COVID and what they do after they get through now a five-day period uh, has all been loosened so much that, yeah, they're letting it rip. They're just telling people you're on your own, get your vaccination and, uh, you know, use your, your own best, uh, you know, judgment when it comes to wearing a mask or keeping social distancing uh, or staying out of uh, situations where, uh, you know, like crowds um, where, you know, you could get uh, infected. Um, I think it's terrible. There was a good article uh, by um, David Wallace Wells, I believe his name is. He's an epidemiologist at, uh, in, in Minnesota who's uh, written some good books, one called Big Farms Cause Big Flu, I believe, and the next one about the COVID pandemic was dead epi epidemiologists. Uh, he had an article out this week. Where did I read that? Uh, I can't remember. But you can probably find it by, you know, searching the Internet. Uh, and it was pretty scary um, in terms of where COVID is at, uh, the likelihood that we're going to get a, a variant pop up that is uh, deadlier than uh, the uh, Omicron variants are. Um, and in any case, we have more infections now this summer than we did last summer. And we went through a, a very uh, deadly winter. And, you know, most of the epidemiologists say we're going to have it again this coming winter. Yet all the public health measures uh, have pretty much been taken away. And they're just saying, get your vaccinations, which, you know, people should, but they are not uh, a whole, you know, they're not fully protected. They're not as protected for Omicron as they were for the variants they were uh, designed for, although they hope to come out in the fall with the Omicron-specific vaccination or one that's more generic and includes uh, Omicron. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's totally a responsibility, and it's another example of the Democrats, instead of fighting the Republicans, caving to them, because it was the Republicans that pushed this thing that, you know, the public health measures are taking our freedom and, uh, you know, the, the more extreme elements saying, you know, COVID is a plot by the new world order to take our freedoms and that kind of nonsense. Um, and the Democrats, instead of fighting it and fighting for public health measures and explaining why we need them, just said, yeah, we're getting rid of them, too, just to take it off the table as a election issue. And they pretty much have. I mean, politically, they've succeeded in doing that. COVID is not a top issue now. Um, but it is, you know, like I've said, many people have said, you know, me, we may want to uh, get rid of COVID or forget about COVID, but COVID hasn't forgotten about us. And, you know, now we got monkeypox and the general uh, prognosis from epidemiologists is that with the climate changing, 
uh, and habitat being destroyed. There's going to be more leaps of viruses that are in animals into the human population that we don't have uh, the immune, immune protection from. So it's, it's a dangerous situation. And uh, we're not investing in public health. That was, that was cut, started with Obama, cut radically by Trump. Um, so we don't even have the uh, public health infrastructure in place to deal with these public health problems. And now we got, you know, this anti-vaccine craze and uh, we got polio coming back. Uh, we, we had a case in Rockland County here in New York. Now they found it in the sewage in New York City, the, the virus, the polio virus. And there are a lot of people because of this vaccine skepticism who are not vaccinated against polio. And believe me, when I was coming up, I knew a number of kids that got polio. And, you know, they lost the use of arms or legs. It's It can be paralyzing. It can be deadly. And, uh, you know, it's real. But, you know, people saying, well, we can't have vaccine mandates. What, we're going to get rid of the mandate that children going to public schools should have their polio vaccination? You know, we're basically inviting these very dangerous diseases back into a uh, our populations. We thought we had eradicated polio. Uh, you know, what about some of these other uh, deadly diseases? You know, smallpox, it's supposedly not out there except in, you know, labs for study. But uh, I think the, the skepticism and disregard for science on the part of so many people, not just the far right, that's, that's their MO. You know, they want to say there's no such thing as evolution, COVID, climate change and that kind of thing. But there are a lot of sort of new agey types on the left that don't really uh, believe in science either. And, you know, so it's become a problem. So I'm, I'm not happy that the Biden administration has basically taken the Republican approach and said COVID's over when it's not. Violet Content Boutique. Howie, do all the heat pump systems require buying a grill underground? I have a dried up lake five feet under this house. Uh, no, you can have window uh, systems, kind of like a window air conditioner, uh, that do it without uh, taking heat from underground. Um, and the grill is, you know, basically a circulating uh, pipe that goes underground where in the summertime, it's cooler, and in the wintertime, it's warmer than what the air is. Uh, but there are heat pumps that act just like refrigerators, pumping the heat one way and the cold the other way. Um, so you don't have to invest in that underground uh, type of heat pump. Uh, the big problem with either system is that it costs a lot of money up front, and that's hard for a lot of people. We need to publicly finance these systems being installed so that people pay back the cost over many years based on the difference in their bills. Because once you have these systems introduced, you just pay for the electricity. You don't have to pay for the fuel, you know, whether it's, you know, natural gas or propane or heating oil. And that difference saves you money. And you can use that savings to pay back the cost over time. And maybe the government should also just grant some of that money. So it's, you know, uh, even more incentive and uh, to get this conversion away from fossil fuel heating and cooling to electrified heating and cooling. 
elect and the electricity hopefully coming from clean energy sources. So, uh, yeah, heat pumps. Bill McKibben had a good column when the Ukraine war uh, broke out called Heat Pumps for Peace and Freedom, I think. And, you know, basically saying, you know, the U.S. and Europe should really push to get heat pumps installed in Europe as fast as possible so they are less dependent on gas from uh, Russia. Um, and I, I think to some extent they're doing that, but not as fast as we'd like. ROGB, ROGB. Hi, all. What do you know about the super flammability of EV car batteries and possible remedies with solid state and maybe graphene batteries? I don't know. I really can't comment on that because um, I'm just not that familiar with the battery technology and, uh, you know, the, the flammability concern with uh, the batteries that they're using. Um, but it sounds like you do. You, it sounds like you know what the possible remedies are to that problem. Um, but I, I can't say more than, than what I just said. I just, but you, you got my interest, my curiosity peaked. So I will, uh, be looking into that this week. Violet at Content Boutique. Howie, have you seen those machines that extract humidity from the air? to produce water. I have not. I mean, I, I, you know, dehumidifiers I'm familiar with. Um, and I'm not sure what the purpose of this here is. Is, is. is it to produce water in dry climates, which don't have much humidity in the air? I wonder, you know, why get your water that way rather than from, you know, reservoirs, lakes, streams, uh, rainwater. So again, uh, we have to look that up too. Okay. Uh, comments on Pelosi's Taiwan trip and the fallout. Well, you know, why Pelosi had to do this at this time when there's already tension in, in a war in Ukraine um, and the Chinese response was predictable. It was kind of sort of challenging them uh, in their claim to Taiwan. Uh, you know, the world recognizes Taiwan as part of China, but also most of the world uh, kind of wants what supposedly was going to protect uh, Hong Kong's democracy, you know, one country, two systems. Um, and that's been, you know, going okay. It doesn't seem like China wants to invade and impose its government on Taiwan, at least not in the immediate term. So, you know, why did Pelosi want to poke that hornet's nest? Didn't seem like a smart move to me. And the fallout is, you know, China's doing these war games. Uh, they've encircled Taiwan. Uh, showing that they could blockade Taiwan in the event of a war. And uh, they did it for five days and then said, we're going to keep doing it for a few more. So, um, and then the U.S., of course, has to respond, and they bring some aircraft carriers closer. And while I don't think anybody wants to start a war, 
you know, when you have ships in close vicinity and aircraft flying around, uh, you know, the decision, you know, doesn't happen at the top level. It could happen there at the ground level and a misunderstanding or, you know, a cowboy on one side or the other starting something could, the thing could spin out of control. And these are two nuclear powers. So, uh, you know, I don't think it was smart on Pelosi's part. And, you know, what China did in response also, and this is something that we need to diplomatically, you know, try to rectify is they said, okay, we're not going to talk to you about military matters, including nuclear disarmament. We're not going to talk to you about climate change. We're basically not going to talk to you about anything constructive. And that was China's response to Pelosi's trip, which wasn't constructive, but that's what they did. And shouldn't be a surprise to Pelosi because China is very sensitive about Taiwan. So that's that's those are my comments. Um, I think at this point, you know, the U.S. rather than you know uh, projecting you know competition with China in a belligerent way, should be saying, look, you know, we have human rights concerns about several things going on in China, but we need to talk about nuclear disarmament and climate in particular, but also the world economy. So it doesn't make sense for us to be, you know, having this hot war or cold war of words. You know, we need to get practical and agree to disagree on some things, but work on other things where we might agree. OT. <coughs> <coughs> Howie, the polar caps are moving, may reverse. Any thoughts? I think you mean the magnetic poles. That has, uh, it does happen periodically in Earth's history. Um, and the, the, the magnetic poles have moved some, but that's one of those things that uh, we can't do much about, except be prepared for when it happens. And I'm not, I've read about this, but I can't remember at the moment. There will be ramifications, I think, for you know, maybe our, uh, you know, electronic communications through the air um, for navigation. Um, so I'm not sure what the consequences are, but I think the only thing we can do is, you know, be prepared for when it may happen. Um, there's a regular cycle, and I forget what the time is, you know, just off the top of my head, you know, 87,000 years or something like that. Um, and we're kind of due for it. So but, you know, it could happen now, you know, tonight, or it could happen, you know, 10,000 years from now. Uh, I don't think the science is sharp enough on that question to give us a better prediction. Comments on Rushdie attack. Well, it's terrible. Um, you know, he's being attacked for, you know, speaking his mind under the fatwa of, uh, you know, the Ayatollah of Iran. And as far I don't know if they've identified the attacker, but, you know, it was probably somebody who was listening to that 
you know, religious uh, zealotry. And uh, <clears throat> all I can say is, you know, I, I, they should have better security for him. Um, so this guy couldn't get up and stab him several times. Um, and I'm not sure. I know he was in the hospital. I'm not sure whether he's in stable or critical condition. I'm concerned because uh, this is another attack on free speech. Um, this time from a you know right wing religious government in Iran, at least motivated by them in all likelihood. But the U.S. Uh, doesn't have clean hands on this either because you know we're, we're going after Julian Assange for publishing leaked documents, which all newspapers do. The Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times—they do it almost daily. They get information leaked, either documents or or often uh, people speaking off the record, uh, people who know what's going on but don't want to uh, be identified because they're not supposed to be talking, but they think the public ought to know. Um, you know, so the assault on Assange is an assault on the whole press. And that should concern us uh, as much as, you know, Iran's, uh, you know, the fatwa, you know, they want somebody to kill Rushdie, and there's a lot of money available to whoever does it or their family if uh, they get caught, in, you know, in prison or executed. So um, it's a terrible thing. Via email, what should the climate movement be doing now that the Dems have passed a dead end climate bill that is funded for 10 years, meaning they are unlikely to follow up anytime soon. Well, I think we got to demand that uh, whoever's in Congress follow up soon. Uh, we need to be running our own candidates against Democrats that don't follow up. Uh, we got to make it an issue and keep pushing. Uh, we can do things at the state and local level and build momentum for the eco-socialist Green New Deal that we really need. Um, so, uh, you know, the demand that Biden do a, a Climate emergency, uh, that's fine. I called for it during the presidential campaign. Of course, I was saying I would do it. I wasn't just demanding that Biden do it because, you know, you, you give these ideas to the Democrats and they water them down and screw them up. Um, but that's what the climate movement is demanding. And, you know, the, the other thing is see if we can stop this uh, permitting bill that will enable uh, things like the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which will take frack gas from West Virginia through uh, down to Virginia and North Carolina, mostly for export. Um, that gas should stay in the ground. We got in the pipeline from wells already drilled enough gas, enough oil to use, you know, that we need to use during the transition to 100% clean energy. And that's coming from the International Energy Agency, not the most uh, radical group. You know, it's an intergovernmental body that was set up during the Energy crisis in the early 70s, generally pretty conservative, but they're just looking at the climate science and saying, we got enough gas and oil. We don't need any more projects. Yet this bill uh, would streamline the permitting, which is where we're able to stop a lot of these things. So that's important. That's coming up as soon as the House gets back in session at the end of the month. So I think that's probably the most immediate thing. And then longer term is we got to keep pushing for a Eco-socialist Green New Deal. In other words, not just give money to corporations to incentivize them building clean energy or stopping to release carbon, 
we need to do it through the public sector, just like we did during World War II to turn the industry on the dime into what FDR called the arsenal of democracy to defeat the fascists. We need to do nothing less through the public sector to defeat climate change because the complex transition requires coordination, massive investment, and the four private corporations, each one acting on their own for their own bottom line, are not going to get it done. I don't care how many incentives you give to them. So that's what we got to keep pushing for. And that's why we need the Green Party, because except for the very left fringe of the Democratic Party, uh, they're not doing these things. And even them, uh, you know, AOC and uh, those people, their Green New Deal is kind of a Keynesian trickle down incentives for the corporate sector. Not much through the public sector. They do have some smaller bills like the uh, Green New Deal for public schools and the Green New Deal for public housing which are good, are through the public sector, but they're just a fraction of what we need to do. And even particularly the housing bill, uh, to me, is way short. It's about uh, retrofitting and rehabbing existing public housing. Nothing about expanding public housing, which we need to do to house the homeless and the people that are being squeezed by these sky-high rents so everybody has an affordable option. Um, to do that, they got to repeal the Faircloth Amendment that was passed during the Clinton administration when Andrew Cuomo, now disgraced governor of New York, was head of housing and urban development. And it says that you can't uh, build new public housing units. You can only replace those that are torn down, uh, which means less than 1% of the housing in this country is public housing. It needs to be something more like 30% to basically create a sector that makes the private housing market have to compete with it and now bring down rents across the board. <clears throat> That's what we've advocated in the public housing or the Green New Deal for, for housing or public housing, whatever it's called, uh, doesn't do that. What it does do is okay, you know, the public housing we got does need to be rehabilitated, uh, including for uh, energy efficiency and clean energy. But uh, the public housing sector needs a lot more. We need a lot more public housing that is green. So even there, the progressive Democrats are not, they're not eco-socialists. They're kind of, you know, New Deal liberals at best. And that's not going to get it done in time to deal with this climate crisis. Kevin Sanchez, do you think the main economic problem in this particular class of wealthy is this particular class of wealthy elites or the capitalist system itself? Well, the main problem is the system itself, just its structural tendencies to grow uh, without limit to the, and destroy the environment, to exploit labor as much as it can and increase inequality, and for capitalist states to compete with each other for cheap labor and markets and resources, uh, which leads to war. So all that's within the system itself. Those are fundamental. Now, this particular class of wealthy elites, yeah, I think it's worse than in the past. As capitalism has become, in the United States, you know, more monopolized or oligopolized, and as we become more segregated by class, uh, particularly in the larger urban areas, you know, uh, 50, 100 years ago, you know, the, the local uh, capitalists that owned the manufacturing plant in town uh, 
lived in the community and went to civic organizations, you know, the Masons, you know, the Elks, whoever, uh, and mixed it up with working class people. They knew each other. Now they're segregated. Uh, they don't know working class people. They dehumanize them in their mind. And that's why, in fact, Ralph Nader pointed this out in his column this week. Um, he pointed out that when he was going to school in the 1940s, in public school, um, the average CEO of a corporation made 12 times what the uh, average worker in that company did. Today, it's over 300 times. And he said back in the 40s, any CEO that uh, tried to uh, you know, pay themselves 300 times what the average worker made would have been uh, ostracized by not just, you know, people in, in the working class, but by other capitalists. They'd say that's just uh, beyond, you know, beyond the pale. There were norms. That's what Nader was writing about, how a lot of civic norms have been replaced by commercial norms. And uh, that's what we got now, because those capitalists have paid themselves 300 times or more. They don't have to interact with working class people, even middle class people. They're off in their own segregated, gated community with the very elite. And they don't even feel, you know, what, what they're doing to their fellow human beings. They're just an abstraction to them. So this particular capitalist class, uh, I think, is worse than the ones we've had uh, in a lot of respects. And, uh, of course, the increasing monopolization of uh, wealth is part of a dynamic of capitalism. So you could say the production of this worse capitalist class is a uh, tendency of capitalism itself. Um, but I think, you know, when we, you know, think about what we're going to do politically, we don't just say we got to get rid of this or that capitalist. You know, Elon Musk is an asshole and Donald Trump is an asshole. If we could only get rid of them, no, we got to change the system because this system produces Donald Trump's and Elon Musk's and Jeff Bezos's and, uh, you know, Bill Gates. Um, so, you know, these people have put commercial values over civic values, as, as Ralph Nader was discussing. So um, the main problem is the system itself. Violet at Content Boutique. An African-American socialist group was raided by the FBI in New York and other places. Any thoughts? Uh, it was African People's Socialist Party. It was in Florida in Missouri, not New York. Um, and, you know, I don't know if the FBI tried to get the documents they were seeking or the information they were seeking by subpoena before they uh, got a warrant and, and raided these premises. Um, and, you know, reading the accounts, they were uh, maybe over, uh, what? They went in there with, uh, you know, pretty aggressively. And that's a concern because there's a whole history of the FBI repressing black liberation groups. You know, Martin Luther King, uh, the Black Panther Party, COINTELPRO, that was under J. Edgar Hoover. Um, hopefully the FBI is not as bad as it was under J. Edgar Hoover, but uh, we keep hearing during the war on terror, they went after uh, Muslim people and appear in a lot of cases to have set them up for terrorism charges that those people never would have uh, gotten near 
if they hadn't been egged on by uh, FBI informants and infiltrators. So there's a lot to be concerned about. On the other hand, uh, you know, is this really a socialist group? One of them, Black Hammer, uh, back in December was uh, joining up with the Proud Boys uh, in, you know, I don't know what, but, uh, you know, they, uh, and that group uh, is under investigation for the death and kidnapping charges um, with their own members. Now, that group split off from the African People's Socialist Party, um, which has been around forever, small group. Um, they have a white support group called the Uhuru Movement. Um, and they have, you know, civil rights, but also what's come out in this, which is concerning, is that uh, they accepted money from uh, Russian sources for election campaigns in St. Petersburg, Florida, for small donations, $3,000 something, but that's still illegal. Uh, accepted full payment for trips to Russia. Um, and basically their position on the Ukraine war is it's Russia's defending itself, which I find, you know, absurd. They sort of take the position that the enemy of my enemy, U.S. imperialism, is my friend. So whatever Russia wants to do, it's in conflict with the U.S. is good by them. I think that, you know, get you in bed your friends become some god-awful right-wing people, but that's their politics. So um, those are my thoughts. I think, you know, their uh, due process rights, civil rights, if they're charged, you know, fair trial. I don't know if they're going to be charged for accepting money for an election. Um, we'll have to see. At this point, the purpose of the uh, FBI warrants was to get evidence against a Russian named Ionov, Ionov <coughs> who heads this sort of astroturf group called the uh, Global, what is it, Global Movement for, and Global Anti-Globalization anti Movement, or what, World Alliance. Anyway, it's anti-globalization movement. I forget the, the proper name of it. And they hosted a conference in uh, 2014 to which some so-called left-wing groups in the U.S. went, um, as well as a lot of neo-fascist groups from Europe and the United States, including the League of the South, which is a you know, racist white supremacist organization. And I guess these leftist groups justified that on the basis of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And if they're against U.S. imperialism and Fort Russia, which is against U.S. imperialism, supposedly, then we're with them. And, you know, these groups included uh, the United Anti-War, United National Anti-War Coalition and the uh, International Action Center, which is associated with the Workers' World Party. And to this day, they defend going to that conference where they were, you know, sitting jowl by jowl with fascists. And, uh, you know, that's what this uh, position that the enemy of my enemy is my friend will get you into you'll be lined with fascists. So I have, you know, a lot of political problems uh, with, you know, the African People's Socialist Party and its perspective, certainly Black Hammer, which is now carousing with the Proud Boys. Um, but on the other hand, you know, any group, and I would defend the right-wing group, you know, their, their due process rights, their civil liberties should be respected. And if they were violated in these raids, uh, by the FBI, then uh, they should they should sue and uh, 
try to get that rectified and get compensation for it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know that enough of the details and what their complaints would be to say, you know, whether they have a case. So those are my thoughts. Eric Gray, thoughts on the distrust that outspoken parents have toward teachers in terms of seeing their children think differently than them politically. Yeah, differently, who is them? The teachers or the parents? Um, because, um, you know, we do know of parents criticizing teachers. I read this week of, and this wasn't a teacher, this was a school. Um, a uh, teacher put up posters of Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman uh, in the classroom, and the school uh, staff ripped them down. Uh, saying they were upsetting to the children, uh, causing division or something. And that teacher resigned because the teacher didn't want to work under those kind of circumstances. So, you know, you have this, you have some parents complaining about critical race theory or about evolution or uh, talking about sexuality that acknowledges there are people who are are heterosexual. Um, and so... And then when the children, you know, think differently than the parents, the parents get upset with the teachers, I guess. Um, and then you got to work in the other way where um, the parents have the children, you know, challenging the teachers. I guess it becomes a political issue in the classroom. So, you know, how do you deal with that? I think, uh, you know, everybody should be able to have their say in a way that uh, – you know, is, is where you can have a real discussion of the issues and the positions rather than what tends to happen like in school board meetings is, you know, you give people in the audience, you know, 30 seconds or a minute or even two minutes to speak and they really can't lay out much of the position. So they go on rants and throw accusations around and it just gets all heated. Lots of heat, but no light. So we've got to have forums in which these issues can be, you know, talked through. And people with very different points of view can at least understand each other and see the other side as coming from an honest place, or maybe not. Exposing them as coming from having another agenda and, and another axe to grind. And they're, they're, they're using this uh, situation as a way to uh, advance an agenda that really doesn't have to do with teaching our children. So that was kind of long-winded, I, I guess. That's the best I can do with the question as it was phrased. I saw a question pop up, but maybe I answered it before it was via email. So is that it? Um, I guess you got the, my label up there. So Well, to wrap up this week, you know, I think it was a pretty good week, actually. Um, even though the Build Back Badly bill did pass without any dissent, um, a lot about it was exposed for the climate movement. We know what we need to do. 
we just try to stop this uh, permitting bill and then, you know, move on and keep running our own people and putting our own program out there for the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal to really get to 100% clean energy and zero emissions in a decade. And beyond that, to repaying the climate debt this country owes to the world. As uh, the Fair Shares Group, our analysis shows, we not only have to get to uh, 100% or zero carbon emissions, we really need 175% reduction by the end of the decade to contribute our fair share to the world. And the way we do that is by uh, helping countries in the global south, you know, build their clean energy systems so they don't have to go through the 19th century fossil fuel era, they can go straight to the 21st century solar era and also mitigate some of the damage that has already been done by climate change. You know, so we know what to do there. And then, you know, Trump looks like he may get his comeuppance. It's way past time. And we got a couple more Green parties anyway on the ballot for this year, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. And uh, <clears throat> good work to those people in those states. And uh, so, I mean, as I say often, you know, the best thing all of us can do be doing is, you know, strengthening and taking action through our local Green Party chapters. That's got to be the grassroots base and power for what we get done at the state and national level. Uh, you just can't do it on top with, you know, a personality or one presidential campaign. It's got to be a movement at the grassroots uh, and challenging for power, first of all, at the local level. And that creates a, a foundation, a platform for moving up to the state level and the House of Representatives. And that's really got to be our strategic perspective. So I'll leave you with that and uh, hope you have a good week and we'll see you next time.